I would like this week and next week, because our annual general meeting is on the 29th, to reflect with you on two passages, two characters within the context of the book of Judges, and allow who they are and what they have done to um, inspire us and to encourage us. So would you turn with me in your Bibles, please, back to Hebrews chapter 11, the passage that I read earlier on. And I'm going to read to you from verses 32 down to verse 34. Whoever wrote Hebrews has set out this wonderful, powerful picture of what's sometimes called the roll call of faith, list of people whose lives very broken sometimes and very shattered, very fractured, not perfect people, but whose faith in God has inspired the writer and inspires us and in fact has inspired Israel. In verse 29, he talks about the example of all of these people and how they have been used by God. And in verse 32, down to 34, we read this. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped from the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. Those examples are remarkable. I want you to turn back with me now to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 8. And to set our context, I just want to uh, read uh, one verse. This, these are the words of two warriors, Ziba and Zalmunna. And here's what we read. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, You come and kill us, for as the man is, so is his strength. So Gideon proceeded to kill Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescents that were on the necks of their camels. And so we get a cameo into the life of a man called Gideon. In May of 1998, the Sunday Observer had a title which recorded a wonderful picture of the referendum result in Ireland at that time about the Good Friday Agreement. I don't know if any of you take the Observer or would remember, I wouldn't expect you to, the headline on that Sunday, 20, almost two, 22 years ago. Here's what it said. I remember the title because it was a powerful title. The Day When Hope and History Rhyme. What a remarkable newspaper title. The Day When Hope and History Rhyme. Since then, in Northern Ireland, hope and history have rarely rhymed. It has been a fraught 21 or 22 years. 
It's been up and down and in and out, and there's been positives and negatives and challenges and uncertainties. And yet, this evening, I want to look at a character of the Bible who could have been seen to encapsulate the hope of God's people. Israel, and how pivotal he was in their history as a nation. His name is Gideon. And I don't know about you, I was talking to um, one of our leaders about this just the other day, but without being optimistic, without being unfairly optimistic or naively optimistic, we seem to have entered a, a slightly better chapter in terms of possibility here in Northern Ireland. The British political scene seems to have calmed down a bit. I'm not saying the challenges are not there, so you don't need to fall out with me over that. But there does seem to be something slightly different about where we are. I think the United Kingdom feels slightly more at peace with itself, on the surface anyway. And with all of the inconsistencies and the questions and the uncertainties that lie around the reinstitution of the assembly last Saturday, at least it started again. At least they're sitting around a table and beginning to talk about what they could do. Hopefully, nurses will get their pay sorted out. Hopefully, teachers will get their pay sorted out. Hopefully, waiting lists can be addressed. But you and I know that those things can change just as quickly in the other direction as they change in a positive direction. So our source of hope isn't in our politics and the fact that some of it seems to have moved a little. Our source of hope as followers of Jesus lies in something much more profound than that. And to be people of hope is not to be people who have all confidence placed in human institutions. Instead, it's to have our confidence in God. To have a deep sense of whatever the circumstances of our lives may be, whatever might be happening around us, God is faithful, amen? Oh. And we can trust him. We can rely on him. This year has started badly for some of you. There's an uncertainty for you. There's a, an anxiety. There's pressure around you. Some of you will be walking into a month where you remember the loss of loved ones. But hope is possible. In 1945, when the Second World War ended, Clement Attlee's government had to introduce a series of austerity measures that were much more profound than the ones that we went through from 2008 through until the last couple of years. And yet the British people managed to navigate that decade into the early 50s with a sense of determination and courage and a conviction that they were doing the right thing. What did they have? In 1945, what did the famous government from 1945 to 51 have that our governments often lack now? They told a story of hope. If you read back in the speeches and the positioning and the things that were being said, they were telling a hopeful story. A story that the British people could identify with and find something to hold on to that made sense of the suffering and the struggles and the sacrifices and the pressures that they were going through at that time. They knew it was for something. I want to explore that with you tonight. How Gideon can be a picture of hope. 
and how you and I might emulate some aspects of what that might mean to be hopeful people in our lives, what would it mean for us to be a community? To use the words of the 1998 headline in The Observer, we're hoping history rhyme. Your life and my life to be a, a picture, a cameo of hopefulness to the world around us. Gideon's name means tree filler <laughs> or warrior. And through him, God routed the enemies of his people and restored a level of hope and expectancy in Israel that had been lost because of bad government and bad leadership. We need in the church of Jesus Christ tonight in Northern Ireland and on the island of Ireland and in our society, women and men who will be like warriors, who will stand and fight for God and for his purposes. We need women and men who are able to cut down the trees and obstacles that have been placed in our way by the enemy, by sin, by fear and by uncertainty. In Hebrews 11, the first reading that I brought to you tonight, we see Gideon mentioned as an example of faith. And we will look at that again later, but his main story is found in Judges chapter 6 through to chapter 8. And like so many of us, Gideon is a man of both highs and lows. He did what God said, eventually. But at several points, he needed reassurance that God was in all that was taking place in him and around him. I think sometimes we're like that. We come to God's will eventually. But once Gideon had known the voice and the mind of God, he acted with confidence. He stepped out with a sense of conviction, trust, precision, and effectiveness. From the pages of the Old Testament, we read of a man who was frightened, disillusioned, and in hiding. Yet he was God's man. And he was used mightily for God's purpose to set God's people free. As you and I think about him tonight for a few moments and the traits of his character, my prayer is that we will be encouraged and challenged to step forward and to be used by God to change our nation for Christ with all of our uncertainties, with all of our hesitations, and with all of our incompleteness. In the book of Judges, the people of Israel were in hiding. Judges chapter 21, verse 25, the end of the story says, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, we read, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. At the time of the account of Gideon in Judges, Israel was in one of her many spiritual down cycles. She'd fallen back into evil and idolatry, and she developed a kind of syncretized religion which incorporated adoration of a, an idol, a, a, a demonic god called Baal, with some elements of Hebrew worship and faith. The worship of God had become like some kind of folk religion, bits of Judaism mixed in with bits of Baal worship and Asherah worship and others. For the last seven years prior to Gideon's appearance, Israel had been dominated by a, a people group called the Midianites and the Amalekites, Israel's arch enemies, children of the east who were controlling them and manipulating them and taking away their identity and forcing them into all kinds of compromises. In Judges chapter 6, verse 2, we read this, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, 
The Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and the other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock like a swarm of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels, and they invaded the land to ravage it. It's a dark, bleak picture of the history of the people of God. They're overrun politically. They're huddled together, trying to survive in caves and clefts and strongholds. They're outnumbered and overpowered by other nations and their forces. The band of people have become so frightened that they have resorted to hiding in caves, hiding in clefts, hiding in places where they thought they were strong, anywhere other than facing the society around them. That could be a picture that is very similar to the church in many ways today. As you and I look around Belfast, as we look around Northern Ireland, as we look across the United Kingdom, and as we look into the Republic of Ireland, we can be amazed at what we see. Crime, evil, sin, strange and concocted morals and ethics on the increase all around us. A change in law and legislation that makes us feel like we are increasingly on the margins of society, that our voices are no longer simply different, but now the Christian voice is increasingly seen as a negative voice, as a controlling voice, as an ethically unkind voice around issues of sexual morality, life, death, and treatment. That in itself shouldn't be a surprise to us. Because the Bible tells us in the New Testament that the enemy has come, as I quoted a few weeks ago, to kill, to steal, and to destroy. All over this community, all over Belfast, Lisburn, and Castle Ray, just like the Midianites and the Amalekites, the enemy has camped on the land. That was exactly what the Midianites were doing then, and it still happens today. The challenge for us is how we respond to that. You would think that we as the church of God would grasp the nettle and do battle for the Lord. But the tragedy is that for very many believers all over this city and all over this country, they retreat instead of advancing. A retreat to what is familiar, to what is known and to what is comfortable. Content in holding their own. Wrestling with trivial points of belief. And arguing about doctrine that is not essential to salvation, whilst the world slowly slips to a lost eternity. The enclave might be in buildings, it might be in cathedrals, it might be in new buildings or old buildings. The cleft could be physically high up or it could be somewhere down a side street in Belfast, but nevertheless it's there. And for many Christians tonight, when they see the world, they run from it. God called Gideon to run toward it. And he calls us as his people to run toward a broken world, not away from it. To run toward our society, not to uh, be the same as it, but to to be harbingers of hope, flames of life. To let our homes and our lives and our marriages and our families and our workplaces and our careers and our scattered ministries say something about what God can do. 
He calls us not to get stuck halfway up a mountain or hidden in a deep theological cave or locked away, but instead to bring all that we are to his purposes and plans in our hospitals, our schools, our homes, our workplaces, our families, and our communities. Many believers are content, like the children of Israel had become, to stay in their little slot and never venture out. Many have become like the disciples after the crucifixion, locked in an upper room. Perhaps it's a locked room of separation. Perhaps it's a locked room of ambivalence. Perhaps it's a locked room of denominationalism or longing to go back to the way things used to be. Whatever it is, and for whatever reason, there are many people who need to somehow cry out to God for a move of his spirit on this land so that it will be changed for the better. We need women and men who will recognize the commission and the command of Hosea, chapter 10, verse 12. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and rains righteousness upon you. I remember as a new Christian back in 1986, reading the Bible ferociously, and I came across a verse in Jeremiah that I have never ever been able to get away from. I've only heard somebody preach on it once. It's a cry of longing and desperation for God to break in. The verse is simply this, the summer has come, the harvest has ended, has ended, and we are not saved. The most powerful exposition of that passage that I have ever, ever, ever read is by C.H. Spurgeon in his collections of sermons. The summer has come and the harvest has ended and we are not saved. It's a picture of people saying, God, we need you. We need you to move in power. We need you to break into our lives. We need you to do something in our world. We need you. Are you hiding in a cleft or a cave? Online or here? Has life dealt you a hard card? And you're trying to scrape an existence? Are you cut off from God's people? Cut off from God? Lonely, disappointed, discouraged? When Jesus saw the multitudes in Matthew chapter 9, we're told in verse 36 that he was moved with compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. As Israel cried out to God, he heard them. His eye is turned toward them. Tonight, I believe God's eye is turned toward us. That he wants to show us mercy and grace. Perhaps our lives have been ruined, our crops have been destroyed, overrun by locusts. We've watched people die in our families. We've seen our money go. We've seen our security robbed. We've seen our peace dismantled. And we don't know what to do. Well, in Judges chapter 6, verse 6, the people cried for help. And God raised up Gideon. Cry for help. Midian One commentator has said, so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. That's what we need today. That's what our week of prayer was about. All over this land, 
People are rising up hungry for God. Have you seen or noticed how many churches are having months or weeks of prayer this year? Everywhere you look. Now, the beginning of the year is often a week of prayer or a day of prayer for churches, but there's more than normal. There are churches praying together. There are churches praying individually. There are men and women across Northern Ireland that are calling out for God. I've been sent this week five different um, prophetic words or statements or prophetic uh, utterances that have been um, released by people across the, uh, the world saying that God wants to do something in Ireland. That his plan and his purpose involves this nation, Northern Ireland. I believe that's true. People who are no longer content to sit and survey the problems and the difficulties that the church has faced for decades, but now are saying, God, we want to see something different. We want to be part of a church that is different. We want to be part of a community of faith that is different. We don't want to just accept the inevitability of the increase of sin. We want to push back darkness. I think this church is such a community. And tonight, from John O'Groats to Land's End, God is moving in hearts and minds across the United Kingdom and in individuals and churches, and he's causing them to call out with all of their might, Lord, have mercy. The summer has come and the harvest has ended and we are not saved. I think God is rousing something in our own church. There might not be lots of people involved in that cry, but it is not the number that matters. It's the intentionality and the heart of those who cry out. I am committed in my own life to seeking God more this year, to allowing space and time to say to him, Lord, move in power in our church and in our city and in our nation. But I want to issue you with a word of warning. When you ask God to do that, he will answer. In the case of the passage in the character that we're looking at tonight, before God raised him up, he sent a nameless but courageous prophet who confronted him with their part in the sorry situation of Israel. In Judges chapter 6, verse 7, here's what we read. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of the Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. If we ask God to move in power across his church, then we must expect that he will say something to us and it might be uncomfortable. When the Israelites cried out to God, what they wanted him to do was fix the problem. What he did was before he began to fix the problem, he said, do you realize that you're part of the problem? You're asking me to move in power, but in order to do so, I've got to tell you, you've forgotten me. You have missed my promises and you are more obsessed or looked at, you're more caught up with what's going on around you than you are with what I said to you. I wonder, can that be true of us sometimes? If you and I are crying to God about a situation tonight that we long to see resolved, then be ready for God to bring the answer. But be sure of this. The person who he will deal with first in that answer is you. When I say to God, change this situation, the first thing he says back is, let me change you. 
God, remove that obstacle. And he will say, well, let me change the obstacles in your heart first. This nameless prophet reminded them that God had brought them out of Egypt in slavery. Reminded them that God took them from the power of Egypt in the hand of the oppressor. He reminded them that, they were, that God drove them out and gave, the people, gave his people the land in the promised land that they're now occupying. He reminded them that God had revealed himself to them. He reminded them that he had called them to obedience. And he reminded them of their sin. God still calls people to speak out his word. He calls Gideon in chapter 6, verse 11. I love the fact that when he calls Gideon, he's not at the front of the crowd. He's not the obvious choice. He isn't there ready with his spear and his sword to rescue God's people. Our first contact with him is he's hiding in a wine press where he's threshing wheat as far away from the enemy as he can get. We encounter him as a frightened and concealed man who would rather hide than face the enemy. Don't judge him too harshly. He was at least using his wits to do something to feed his family. But he is hiding. And when we see the angel of the Lord speak to him in chapter 6, verse 12 of Judges, I hope you catch the irony of it. Hiding in a wine press as far away from the front line as possible. And the angel of the Lord says, What are you doing here, you dafty? <laughs> the angel of the Lord says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. What's mighty about this warrior? What's warrior about this warrior? God sees something in him that he doesn't see in himself. God calls something out of him that he couldn't call out of himself. You might be hiding in a wine press. But what does God see in you? Other people might not see it. But what does God see? It is rather odd that the angel of the Lord says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But think about it for a moment. Here we have a young man hiding in the equivalent of a huge vat, a silo, so that no one will see him. Like a grain store, and God comes to meet with him, and despite the surroundings, greets him as a mighty warrior. A mighty warrior? From the externals, that would be like telling Mr. Muscle he had a fantastic physique. <laughs> I thought that was quite funny, by the way, but never mind. Not only that, but he said, the Lord is with you. The absolutely staggering thing, sisters and brothers, is that God doesn't tell lies. So he wasn't using hyperbole. He wasn't stroking Gideon's ego. He meant it. Even in the wine press, where no one could see and no one could find, God could see and God could find. But more than that, we would externally judge that this man was a wimp. A no-hoper and a waste of time. The double irony is that not only did God meet him in the wine press in the first place, much like King Saul being found amongst the stuff, but also that God would see past the wine press and past the hiding and past his fear and past his timidity and see a mighty warrior. 
Where are you hiding? I'm hiding in my pain. I'm hiding in my struggle. I'm hiding in my home. I'm hiding in my workplace. I've stepped back from involvement because of being hurt and I'm disillusioned. I'm hiding behind my wine press of criticism. I'm an expert in telling people how to do it better. I'm hiding from the reality that I need to change because I don't want to and I don't know how. I know that God has his hand upon me for his work, but I'm hiding because I'm afraid. I'm hiding because I'm upset. I'm hiding because I'm disillusioned. God sees your heart. And he sees past the wine press. And he comes to you in a place of concealment or pressure. And he makes it a place of refining and improvement. He takes crushing and bruising and turns it into polishing. He takes despair and fear and turns it into a springboard for acts of valor in life. And you can hide from me for the rest of your life, but you cannot hide from God. He says, the Lord is with you. And he means it. And in Judges chapter 6, verses 13 and following, Gideon is despondent. And God's reaction is wonderful. Gideon's reply is honest and open. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of the Midian. Have you ever cried like that? You said you'd be there and it doesn't feel like you are. You promised to deliver us and we're still stuck. I thought my life would be different at this season and it isn't. How come I'm in a mess if you're telling me that you're with me? That is honest prayer. The problem is that we evangelicals are not good at it. We think God needs to hear our declarations of trust when we're not trusting him. Our declarations of hope when we're afraid. Our declarations of determination when inside we're quaking as if God can't see the real us. So we try to pretend that we're feeling strong and that everything is together. When God says, I know that everything isn't together. Why can't you just be honest with me? And at the point of honesty, you put a key into the door of possibility. Vulnerability is the key that unlocks possibility in the kingdom of God. I have cried like this. Yet the reply that God gave Gideon is staggering. He didn't remind him of the fact that he was with him. In fact, he didn't even answer the question that he said, that he asked. He simply says this in verse 14. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? What? Behold, mighty man of warrior, mighty man of valor, great warrior. Gideon replies, How can I be a, a mighty man? Where is God in the midst of all of this? His promises have not been fulfilled. Everything is going wrong. Give me an answer. And like God engages with Job, God says to Gideon, Go in the strength you have. He doesn't answer his questions. It's as if he says to um, Gideon, Get up. And do what I've asked you to do. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? 
With one answer, God sweeps through the cynicism and he touches the core. You go and you do something. Not surprisingly, in verse 15, Gideon replies, But Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. It's getting worse. I'm hidden in a wine press. I have no power. I'm full of doubt and uncertainty. I'm full of fear. I'm weak. I'm small. I'm from the smallest family. We have the least influence. There's nothing that I can give you. God's reply then is God's reply now to those of us who feel we cannot do it. I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites together. To all our questions, God says, I'm with you. To all our uncertainties, but I'm with you. To all our fears, but I'm with you. Lord, I will never do it. You're absolutely right. Lord, I'm not strong enough. Right again. Lord, I'll never make this on my own. I'm glad you've realized that. What are you saying to me, Lord? I am with you. Gideon consecrates himself to God's call in chapter 6 from verses 17 through to verse 24. And then he responds to God's commission by sacrifice. That will often be the case for us. The interesting thing to note is that the only thing after the sacrifice has been made that, that, uh, that God touched was with the staff and he consumed it with fire. God touches the sacrifice and consumes it with fire. Maybe God's calling you into something tonight. He's calling you to lay down relationships that are wrong. He's saying to you, I have your best interests in my heart. You are chasing after other gods. The God of companionship, the God of money, the God of ease. Maybe God is telling you tonight that when you list all the problems that you have and the challenges that you face, he has put the solutions in your grasp and you're not using them. Get me out of this financial mess. And God says, then sell your house. I can't afford to live like this. And God says, back then, live modestly. I'm unhappy with you. Then don't go out with an unsaved person. Don't allow yourself to sacrifice God's best for you on the altar of the immediacy of feeling satisfied. 2020 is a year of huge possibility for us as a church. But I don't want you to leave this meeting or be part of our church family and think for one minute that God says, you need to do nothing. I'll sort everything out for you. Sometimes God has given us solutions and he asks us to employ them. And what they involve is humbling ourselves, changing our position and our outlook in life and allowing him to become central again and giving him back the things that we think are ours by entitlement. Could God be calling somebody into a new ministry tonight? Could he be calling you into a new season? Could he be asking you to do something that you know in your life for years his hand has been upon you for? And somewhere in daily living, you've lost its fire. Gideon is an example of someone who both tested the call of God and took steps of faith. 
In this story, he places his offering before the angel of the Lord, and then he realizes more fully that he was talking with God. Do you see what happens? In the same way as God speaks to Moses or Abraham, he says something and waits. Then when Moses and Abraham respond, he says something else. And when they respond, he says something else, and he draws them in to intimacy. Our problem is that very often what we want is God to bring us to the place of absolute intimacy without the journey of consecration. Fire consumed what Gideon lay down. God sometimes waits on us consecrating ourselves to him honestly before moving to give us an assurance in our hearts. He steps toward the line and he says, if you want what I have for you, then you will have to step over the line. And our problem is very often we say, no God, you need to do all of the work. You need to come all the way to me. I'm not moving. And most often in the life of faith, God says, I step toward you and I step toward me. I've made the first move, now respond. I have initiated something with you, and now I need you to respond. Fire consumes the offering that Gideon makes, and the fire of the Holy Spirit could consume our lives as we consecrate ourselves to his service. Gideon responds in fear, as would any of us. And then God grants him peace. Indeed, in verse 24 of um, Judges 6, we are told that Gideon built an altar and called it, the Lord is peace. I wonder what God is asking for us to lay on the altar. What's he asking you to lay on the altar? What's he asking me? Then in the story, Gideon destroys the altars of Baal in verses 25 to 31. Before God used Gideon further, he asked him to put his house in order. Here's what he says. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole. Both false gods and wrong altars had to go. It's as if God is saying, get your house in order. And that's exactly what he was saying. The same is true of you and me tonight. God, I think, would say to us like he did to Gideon, get your house in order. Interestingly, Gideon now exhibits apprehension and fear. Was it that he didn't trust God? I don't think so. For whatever reason, he pulled down the altar and he tore down the pole at night so that no one could see him. Sometimes we know the right thing to do. We just don't want anybody to see us doing it, right? Oh, maybe it's only me. In verse 27, we read, because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. God tells him to do something. He says, yes, but I'll wait until nobody can see. Gideon's father, Joash, protected him in the onslaught that followed him. He simply pointed out that if Baal was God, he could deal with Gideon himself. I wonder why Gideon let his father deal with the situation. I wonder why the people who had cried out to God were so upset that Gideon was actually doing something to honor God. They prayed for God to move. God was moving and now they were upset. 
Why? Because his moving was challenging them. God, move, but don't let me have to change. God, move, but don't mean, don't let it involve any level of sacrifice or commitment on my part. Fill the land with your glory and send someone else. And God says, if you call me to move, then I want you to be part of the answer. After all that they had prayed to God for, he was moving and they didn't like it. Brothers and sisters, Gideon teaches us that lip service is a very dangerous thing. And then we come to this weird story of Gideon and the fleece. For whatever reason, Gideon wanted to have the direction that God had given him verified. And God did that twice. Once through a fleece being saturated with dew, and the second time through the fleece remaining dry and the ground being saturated with dew. You can read it in uh, Judges chapter 6, verses 36 and following. By this time, the battle troops have been joined and called. The trumpet has been blown and they're assembled. They're ready and ready to go. But God has an engagement with Gideon because Gideon says, wait just a minute. Is this the right thing to do? Perhaps the nerves of the moment got the better of him. Perhaps he was really unsure. Perhaps he was afraid. Looking out at the lives of the people who had gathered, you'd be bound to feel a tinge of responsibility and the weight of expectancy on your shoulders. I know you've called us to this, Lord, but it's a lot. It's a big task. It's a big ask. And sometimes we falter before we follow. And in those moments, people lay fleeces. I'm not sure how I feel about that. I certainly don't believe that we should be laying fleeces on a regular occurrence as the kind of divining rod of God's judgment and purposes. Like waiting on... Do any of you ever read the story of um, The Secret Diary of Adrian Plass? No? Oh, it's so funny. It's this story about a, a young fellow who becomes a Christian. And um, to cut a long story short... There's a brilliant section in the book when Adrian Plass uh, fancies a girl and um, he wants to kind of get himself ready to go out with a girl. He's a young teenager. I don't know why I'm looking at you, Tyler. You're not a young teenager. He's a young teenager. And um, he's going through this kind of what could God be saying to me, what could God not be saying to me phase. And um, he notices in the weekly newspaper that there's a new James Bond movie coming out on a Thursday. And he says, I'd really like to go to that. And then he gets a phone call from his church, one of the church leaders saying, could you come carol singing with us on Thursday night? Because we don't have enough people and you've got a great voice. And he says, yes. But he doesn't really want to go. He wants to go to the James Bond movie. So the following day, he writes in his prayer journal, Lord, is it your will for me to go carol singing? I think it probably is, but I need you to verify it. On the Tuesdays, one of his mates has told him that he's going to the James Bond movie on the Thursday night. And he says, I'm sensing God might be leading me in a different direction about the carol singing. So you read his diary for the Thursday morning of the carol singing that evening, and he says, I have cracked a great plan to work out whether God wants me to go carol singing tonight. If a Japanese dwarf dressed in a general's uniform comes to the door at 6.29, I will know it's God's will for me to go carol singing. 
And at 6.30, he writes in his diary, Hallelujah! No Japanese dwarf in a military uniform off to see James Bond. Be careful that your list of Lord is this you, is this you, doesn't become so big and so complicated and so narrow that actually you have just fooled yourself. You've decided you don't want to do what God's asking and you're trying to find a way of justifying it. Gideon wasn't sure and he needed God to intervene. In those moments when we are not sure, when we are genuinely uncertain, God is gracious to us. But sometimes he says to us, just believe what I've said. Just follow what I've asked you to do. Let me tell you, I have an absolute conviction. An absolute conviction. Deeper than almost any conviction that I have ever had in my life. That this decade for this church is profoundly significant for here, for the island of Ireland, for Europe and for the world. And that requires us to consecrate ourselves and to follow where God is leading and to take some risks and to step out into the unknown. Now, I can't convince you of that. It's not actually my job to convince you of that. But I have positioned and postured myself before God over Christmas and the new year. I am following what he wants. I am not stepping back from it. And I believe that he has powerful things for us to do. Like Moses, we need to hear God's cry. But like Moses, we also need to say, unless you lead us from this place, we will not go. So how do you prepare for a new season to follow God. Well, Gideon has 32,000 people. The Midianites have 135,000 people. We're told that in chapter 7, verse 1, and chapter 8, verse 10. Gideon issues the first challenge, and 22,000 people leave. That's a problem. In chapter 7, verse 2, I wonder what he felt then. Then there's another challenge. And in verses 4 to 8, he's left with 300. Why did all that happen? So that they would know that the battle was won because God was on their side, not because of their cunning or their cleverness or their planning or their ideas or their creativity or their their complex Plans. The battle was God's battle. Our strength doesn't lie in our numbers. The Donald Elam is not strong because it's getting bigger. Our strength lies in God. In what God is doing. And I think it's important for you to know that sometimes in the church numbers go down as well as up when God is on the move. I hope, I pray you don't evaluate and equate God at work with more people coming to church. I could, we could together fill this fellowship in six months. It doesn't mean God's at work. Our strength doesn't lie in our numbers or in our plans, but in our dependence of God. And if God can defeat an army of 135,000 people with 300, then he can win Northern Ireland for Christ. Do you remember Gehazi being shown the battlements of God? 
There are more for you than there are against you. Do you remember the 120 in an upper room who turned Jerusalem upside down? Do you remember the story of Israel itself, this smallest band of people used by God for his purposes? The church, this small eclectic band of slaves and misfits that are used by God to transform the world. In Judges chapter 7, verse 15, we are told that we are to use what God has given to us wisely. God, Gideon is still sensitive to God. He's assured of God's promises of victory. And they win the battle with trumpets, empty jugs and light. What are they for? No spears or swords. No great weaponry. Trumpets, jugs and lights. The trumpet of faith. The empty jug of a life poured out before God for his service. And the light of God's spirit and God's word leading and guiding us. Those are the things that we need. When you continue with the story, you find in chapter 8 verse 1, this fundamental question, who gets the glory when God is at work? The Ephraimites get the glory in this story. Nothing to do with them. The Gideon doesn't care. He doesn't care who gets the reputational boost. He just wants God's glory to be seen. When we do something for God, when we try to step out in faith, somebody somewhere will always be ready to criticize us sharply. But do you believe with me that all things are possible? That God has a plan and that he's calling us to be part of it? In Judges chapter 8, verse 4, the men of Succoth and Peniel, who refused to give help and succor because they didn't believe it could happen, they say, we're not with you. And yet, these band of men following after God's purpose are tired and exhausted, but they keep going. They don't stop. In chapter 8, verse 22, Gideon refuses to be crowned king. In chapter 8, verse 27, he refuses the gold that they offer. But the story ends sadly. In chapter 8, verse 33, Gideon's end is not a glorious one. Sisters and brothers, God needs another man and another woman with a heart like Gideon. He needs one in Bangor, one in Moira, one in Lisburn, one in Dundonald, one in Newton Arts, one in East Belfast and South Belfast and North Belfast. Which one have I missed out? I've left one out. The other one, West Belfast. God needs a generation of Gideons, not just one. And I think he's calling us to be that generation. Someone might be here tonight or listening online who is hiding from the implications of what God has for them. And he wants you to step out into his call. Someone who will lead the people of God to great victory because of God's hand upon her or him. Is that you? You're not too old. You're not the wrong gender. 
You haven't passed it. Your story doesn't rule you out. Perhaps tonight you have been hiding from God most of your life or only just recently. And God is saying, step out. God, Gideon wasn't strong in the eyes, the world's eyes. Neither was Jesus. Gideon led the people to victory. So did Jesus. Gideon searched the hearts of those who followed him. So does Jesus. Gideon may have been an unlikely hero, faint and pursuing, but God was strong enough. God is strong enough for us tonight. Where are you? How do you respond to all that I say as I draw this to a close? Whatever is going on in your life and mine, God can hear the cry of the desperate. He might confront us with our own shortcomings and failings, but he will answer us. Maybe you hear God saying to you tonight, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Maybe you hear God calling you to serve him, to consecrate yourself to him. You don't know how it will happen and you don't have the strength to do it. But God is calling you. Maybe God's asking you to lay your life on the altar before him and he asks you to pull down the false gods in your life and your family's life. Maybe he wants you to take the things that are in your hand, the trumpet of faith, the picture of an empty life and the light of the spirit and the word and lay them at the feet of Jesus and see what he will do with them. Those words that we read at the very beginning of this Bible study, as is the man, so is his strength. As are your days, so may your strength be. And you know what my prayer for our church family is, which includes you if you're part of this church congregation, for the next few years? That the best will lie ahead of you. That you'll not look back to some moment in your previous story as your best, but that you'll look forward and that you will believe that God has more for you. I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets we began with, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword. But here's the bit, here's the section, here's the killer punch, the one that lifts us out of the drowning water, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign enemies. Sisters and brothers, it's time for us to stop hiding in wine presses and step into all that God wants us to do. Amen.